Chapter 19 The Sea of Kazakh A few hours later, as the evening mists came curling from the rust-water marshes, Tunbridge Wheels rolled down to the edge of the sea. It paused there a while, gazing out toward a cluster of islands that rose dark and rugged from the silver water. Birds were streaming in off the sea in long skeins, and as the suburb cut its engines, the beat of their wings came echoing over the mudflats. Small waves beat steadily against the shore, and a wind from the east blew hissing through the thin grey marum grass. There was no other sound, no other movement, no light or smoke trail of a wandering town anywhere on the marshes or the sea. Not swervy! shouted Chrysler Peavy, standing with a telescope to his eye at the window of his observation bridge, high in the town hall. Where is the lad? Pass the word for Natsworthy. When a couple of his pirates ushered Tom and Hester in, he turned with a broad grin and held out the telescope, saying, Take a look, Tommy boy. I told you I'd get you here, didn't I? I told you I'd get you through these marshes safe. Now, have a look at where we're going. Tom took the telescope and put it to his eye, blinking at the trembling, blurred circle of view until it came clear. There were dozens of little islands speckling the sea ahead, and a larger one that loomed in the east like the back of an enormous prehistoric monster breaking the water. He lowered the telescope and shuddered. But there's nothing there, he said. It had taken more than a week for Tunbridge Wheels to pick its slow way through the quagmire, and although Chrysler Peavy had taken quite a shine to Tom, he had still not explained what he hoped to find on the far side. His men had not been told either, but they were happy enough snapping up the tiny townships that had taken shelter in the mazes of the rustwater, semi-static places with moss-covered wheels and delicate, beautiful carvings on their wooden upperworks. They were so small that they were barely worth eating, but Tunbridge Wheels ate them anyway, and murdered or enslaved their people and fed the lovely carvings to its furnaces. It was a horrible, confusing time for Tom. He had been brought up to believe that municipal Darwinism was a noble, beautiful system, but he could see nothing noble or beautiful about Tunbridge Wheels. He was still an honoured guest in the town hall, and so was Hester, although Peavy clearly didn't understand his attachment to the scarred, sullen, silent girl. Why don't you ask my Cortina out? he wheedled one night, sitting next to Tom in the old council chamber that was now his dining hall. Or why not one of them girls we took off the last catch? Lovely lookers they was, and not a word of English, so they can't give you any lip. Hester isn't my girlfriend! Tom started to say, but he didn't want to have to go out with the mayor's daughter, and he knew Peavy would never understand the truth, that he was in love with the image of Catherine Valentine, whose face had hung in his mind like a lantern through all the miles of his adventures. So he said, Hester and I have been through a lot together, Mr. Peavy. I promised I'd help her catch up with London. But that was before, the mayor reasoned. You're a Tunbridge Wheelsian now. You're going to stay here with me like the son I never had, and I'm just thinking that maybe the lads would accept you a bit more easily if you had a better-looking girl, you know, more ladylike. Tom looked across the clutter of tables and saw the other pirates glaring at him, fingering their knives. He knew that they would never accept him. They hated him for being a soft city dweller and for being Peavy's favourite, and he couldn't really blame them. Later, in the little room he shared with Hester, he said, We have to get off this town. The pirates don't like us, and they're starting to get tired of Peavy going on at them about manners and stuff. I don't even like to think about what will happen to us if they mutiny. Let's wait and see muttered the girl, curled up in a far corner. Peavy's tough, and he'll be able to keep his lads in line as long as he finds them this big catch he's been promising. 
but Quirk alone knows what it is. We'll find out tomorrow, said Tom, drifting into an uneasy sleep. This time tomorrow, these horrible bogs will be behind us. This time tomorrow, and the horrible bogs were behind them. As Peavy's navigator spread out his maps in the observation bridge, a strange hissing sound echoed up the stairwells of the town hall. Tom glanced up at the faces of Peavy's henchmen as they clustered around the chart table, but apart from Hester, no one seemed to have heard it. She looked nervously at him and shrugged. The navigator was a thin, bespectacled man named Mr. Ames. He had been the suburb's schoolteacher until Peavy took over. Now he was settling happily into his new life as a pirate. It was a lot more fun, and the hours were better, and Peavy's ruffians were better behaved than most of his old pupils. Smoothing his maps with his long, thin hands, he said, It used to be the hunting ground for hundreds of little aquatic towns, but they all ate each other, and now anti-tractionist squatters have started coming down out of the mountains and setting up home on islands like this one. Tom craned closer. The great inland sea of Kazakh was speckled with dozens of islands, but the one Ames was pointing to was the biggest, a tattered diamond shape some twenty miles long. He couldn't imagine what was so interesting about it, and most of the other pirates looked baffled too, but Peavy was chuckling and rubbing his hands together in glee. Oh, the Black Island, he said. Not much to look at, is it? But it's going to make us rich, boys, rich. After tonight, old Tunbridge Wheels will be able to sit up as a proper city. How? demanded Mungo, the pirate who trusted Chrysler Peavy least and most resented Tom. There's nothing there, Peavy. Just a few old trees and some worthless mosses. What are mosses? Tom whispered to Hester. He means people who live in static settlements, she hissed back. You know, like in that old saying, a rolling town gathers no moss. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, announced Peavy, that there is something on the Black Island. A few days ago, just before you come aboard, Tom, we shot down an airship that was footling about over the marshes. Its crew told me something very interesting before we killed them. It seems there's been a big battle up in Airhaven. Fires, engine damage, gas spills, the whole place knocked about so bad they couldn't stay up in the sky, but had to come down for repairs. And where'd you think they've landed? The Black Island, suggested Tom, guessing as much from Peavy's greedy grin. <laughs> That's my boy, Tommy. There's an air caravanserai there, where sky convoys refuel on their way up from the League's lands south of the mountains. That's where air havens put down. They think they're safe with sea all round them and their mossy friends to help them, but they ain't safe from Tunbridge wheels. A ripple of excitement ran through the assembled pirates. Tom turned to Hester, but she was staring out across the sea toward the distant island. Half of him was appalled by the thought that the lovely flying town was lying crippled there, waiting to be eaten. The other half was busy wondering how on earth Peavy planned to reach it. "'To your stations, me hearties!' the pirate mayor yelled. "'Fire up the engines! Prime the guns! By dawn tomorrow we'll all be rich!' The pirates scrambled to obey his orders, and Tom ran to the window. It was almost dark outside now, with a last ominous glow of sunset bruising the sky above the marshes. But the streets of Tunbridge Wheels were full of light, and all around the edge of the suburb huge orange shapes were unfolding, growing like fungus in a speeded-up film. Now the hissing from the lower deck made sense. While P.V. talked, his town had been busily pumping air into flotation chambers, 
and these inflatable rubber skirts. Let's go swimming! Shouted the pirate mayor, sitting back in his swivel chair and signaling the engine rooms. The huge motors rumbled into life. A plume of exhaust gases drifted aft, and Tumbridge wheels surged forward across the beach and into the sea. At first, all went well. Nothing stirred on the darkening waters as Tumbridge wheels went chugging eastward, and up ahead the black island grew steadily larger. Tom opened a small side window on the bridge and stood there, feeling the salt night air spill over him, feeling strangely excited. He could see pirates gathering in the old market square at the suburb's forward end, readying grappling hooks and boarding ladders, because Airhaven would be far too large to fit into the jaws. They would have to take it by force and tear it apart at their leisure. He didn't like the idea especially when he remembered that his aviator friends might still be on Airhaven. But it was a town-eat-town town world, after all, and there was something exciting about the cutthroat recklessness of Peavy's plan. And then, suddenly, something fell out of the sky and exploded in the market square, and there was a black gash in the deck, and the men he had been watching weren't there any more. Others came running with buckets and fire extinguishers. Airship! 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 Someone was shouting. And then there were more rushing things, and buildings were exploding all over the suburb, with people flung tumbling high up into the air like mad acrobats. For sooty beats sake! shouted Peavy, running to the shattered observation window and staring down into the smoke-filled streets. His monkey jumped up and down on his shoulders, jabbering. These mussies are better organized than we gave them credit for, he said. Searchlights, quick! Two wavering fingers of light rose above the town, feeling their way across the smoke-dappled sky. Where they met, Tom saw a fat, rising shape shine briefly red. The suburb's guns swung upward and fired a rippling broadside and pulses of flame stalked the drifting clouds. Oh, mist, hissed Peavy, squinting through his telescope. Curse it! I should have known Air Haven would send up spotter ships, and if I'm not mistaken, it was that witch Fang's old rust bucket. The Jenny Hanover, gasped Tom. No need to sound so pleased about it, snarled Peavy. She's a menace. Ain't you heard of the Windflower? Tom hadn't told the pirate mayor of his adventures aboard Airhaven. He tried to hide his happiness at the thought that Miss Fang was still alive, and said, I've heard of her. She's an air trader. Oh, yeah, Peavy spat on the deck. You think a trader carries that sort of firepower? She's one of the Anti-Traction League's top agents. She'll stop at nothing to hurt us poor traction towns. It was her who planted the bomb that sank Marseille, and her what strangled the poor sultana of Palau Penang. She's got the blood of a thousand murdered townsfolk on her hands. Still, we'll show her, won't we, Tommy boy? I'll have her guts for goulash. I'll hang her carcass out for the buzzards. Mungo, Pogo, Mags, an extra cut of the spoils to whoever shoots down that red airship. No one did shoot down that red airship. It was long out of range, buzzing back toward the Black Island to warn Airhaven of the approaching danger. But Tom could not have been more filled with grief and anger if he had seen it falling in flames. So that was why Miss Fang had rescued him and been so kind. All she had wanted was information for the League, and her friend, Captain Cora, had been in on it, spinning that tale about her just to win Tom's sympathy. Thank Quirk, he had not been able to tell her anything. Tumbridge Wheels was battered and burning, but the Jenny Hanover's rockets had been too small to do any serious damage, and now that the element of surprise was lost, Miss Fang did not risk another attack. The suburb chugged on into the east, pushing a thick bore of flame-lit water ahead of it. Tom could see lights on the Black Island now, 
lanterns flickering along the shore. Closer, between the island and the suburb, shone another cluster of lights. Boats! shouted Mungo, peering through the sights of his gun. Peavy went and stood at the window, robes flapping on the rising breeze. Fishing fleet, he grunted, sounding satisfied. First meal of the night. We'll eat em up by way of an aperitif. That's starters to you lot. The fishing boats started scattering as Tunbridge wheels bore down, running goose-winged for the shelter of the shore. But one, bigger and slower than the rest, sagged away to windward. Ho-ho, <laughs> we'll have him, growled Peavy, and Mags relayed his order into the intercom. The suburb changed course slightly, engines grumbling. The steep crags of the Black Island filled the sky ahead, blotting out the eastern stars. What if there are guns on the heights? thought Tom. But if there were any, they stayed silent. He could see the white wake of the boat ahead, and beyond it, a faint pale line of breakers on the shore. And then there were other, closer breakers, dead ahead, and Hester was shouting, Peavy, it's a trap! They all saw it then, but it was much too late. The fishing boat, with its shallow keel, ran clear through the reef, but the great lumbering bulk of Tunbridge wheels struck at full speed, and the sharp rocks clawed its belly open. The suburb lurched and settled, throwing Tom off his feet and rolling him hard against the legs of the chart table. The engines failed, and in the terrible silence that followed, a klaxon began lowing like a frightened bull. Tom crawled back to the window. Down below he saw the streets going dark as a great rush of water came bursting through the palisades. White geysers of foam sprayed up through gratings from the flooded underdeck and mingled with the whiteness he saw black flecks of debris and tiny, struggling figures. The boat was far away, tacking to admire her handiwork. A hundred yards of sea separated the doomed suburb from the steep shores of the island. A hand grabbed his shoulder, heaving him toward the exits. You're coming with me, Tommy boy, snarled Chrysler Peavy, snatching a huge gun from a rack on the wall and swinging it onto his shoulder. You too, Amesy, Mungo, Mags, you're with me. They were with him, the pirates forming a tight protective knot around their mare as he hurried Tom down the stairs. Hester came limping behind. There were screams below and frightened faces staring up at them from a third-floor landing already knee-deep in water. Abandoned town, hollered Peavy. Women and mares first. They crashed into his private quarters, where his daughter stood clutching her frightened sisters. Peavy ignored her and waded to a chest in the corner, scowling with concentration as he twirled the combination lock this way and that. The chest sprang open. He dragged out a little orange bundle. And then they were on the move again, out onto the balcony where the sea was already spilling through the railings. Tom turned back into the room, meaning to help Cortina and the children, but Peavy had forgotten all about them. He flung the bundle down into the waves, and it unfolded with a complicated hiss, flowering into a small circular life raft. Get aboard, he snapped, taking hold of Tom and thrusting him toward it. But get aboard! A boot in the seat of his breeches sent him tumbling over the balcony rail and down onto the yielding rubber floor of the raft. Mungo was next. Then the others piled in so fast that the raft wallowed deep and water spilled over the gunnels. Oh, 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 wailed Cortina Peavy, somewhere away to the left. But by the time Tom had scrambled out from under Mr. Ames, the suburb was already far away, its stern submerged and its bows tilted high into the night sky. He looked for Hester and found her crouching beside him. Peavy's monkey jabbered with fear, bouncing up and down on his head. Oh, 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 came the distant cries, and there were white splashes, dozens of splashes, as people leaped from palisades and the useless tatters of the airbags. Hands clutched at the sides of the raft, and Mungo and Peavy beat them away. Frantic figures came splashing through the swell toward them, 
and Janny Mags stood up and fired her machine gun, churning up red water all around the raft. The suburb was tilting steeper, steeper. There was a rush of steam as the sea poured into its boilers, and then, with sudden, shocking speed, it slid under. The water boiled and heaved. For a while there were screams, faint cries for help, a brief rattle of gunfire as a drifting fragment of debris changed hands, a longer one as a few lucky pirates battled their way onto a beach. Then there was silence, and the raft turning slow circles as the current drew it in toward the shore. Chapter 20 The Black Island At dawn, Shrike comes to the edge of the sea. The tide is turning, and the deep wheel marks that lead down into the surf are already starting to blur. Eastward, smoke rises from settlements on the shores of the Black Island. The stalker wrenches his dead face into a smile, feeling very pleased with Hester Shaw and the trail of destruction that she has left behind her. The thought of Hester is all that dragged him through the marshes. On and on it has drawn him, through mud that sucked at his damaged leg, and sloughs whose bitter waters sometimes closed over his head but at least the tracks the suburb left were easy to follow. He follows them again now, stalking down the beach and into the waves like a swimmer bent on a morning dip. Salt water slaps at the lenses of his eyes and seeps stinging through the gashes in his armour. The sounds of the gulls and the wind fade, replaced by the dim hiss of the underneath of the sea. Air or water, it makes no difference to the resurrected men. Fish goggle at him and dart away into forests of kelp. Crabs sidle out of his path, rearing up and waving their pincers at him, as if they are worshipping a crab god, armoured, invincible. He ploughs on, following the water scent of oil and axle grease that will lead him to Tumbridge Wheels. A few miles from the inlet where they had come ashore, Chrysler Peavy paused at the top of a steep rise and waited for the others to catch up. They came slowly, first Tom and Hester, then Ames with his map, finally Mags and Mungo, bent under the weight of their guns. Looking back, they could see the steep rocky flanks of the island falling to the sea, and a cluster of boats gathered above the wreck of Tunbridge Wheels, where a raft with a crane on it had already been anchored. The islanders were wasting no time in looting the drowned suburb. Mussy scum, growled Peavy. Tom had barely spoken to the mayor since they first came struggling ashore. Now he was surprised to see tears gleaming in the little man's eyes. He said, I I'm so sorry about your family, Mr. Peavy. I tried to reach them, but little twerps, snorted Peavy. I wasn't sniffling over them. It's my lovely suburb. Look at it, damn mossies. Just then, from somewhere to the south, they heard the faint clatter of gunfire. Peavy's face brightened. He turned to the others. Hear that? Some of the lads must have got ashore. There'll be more than a match for them mossies. We'll link up with them. We'll capture Air Haven yet. Keep a few of its people alive to repair it, kill the rest, and fly back to the mainland rich. Drop out of the sky on a few fat towns before word gets around that Airhaven's gone pirate. <laughs> Catch ourselves a city, maybe. <laughs> he set off again, hauling himself up from boulder to boulder, with the monkey riding on his hunched shoulders. The others followed behind. Mags and Mungo seemed dazed by the loss of Tunbridge Wheels, and not convinced by Peavy's latest plan. They kept exchanging glances and muttering together when their mare was out of earshot. But they were in strange country, and Tom didn't think they had the nerve to move against Peavy. Not yet. As for Mr. Ames, he had never set foot on the bare earth before. Oh, it's horrible, he grumbled. So difficult to walk on, all this grass. There may be wild animals or snakes. 
I can quite see why our ancestors decided to stop living on the ground. Tom knew exactly how he felt. To north and south of them, the steep side of the Black Island stretched away, and above them the slope climbed almost vertically to dark crags that moaned with ghostly voices as the wind blew around them. Some of the higher pinnacles of rock had been sculpted into such wild shapes that from the beach they had looked like fortresses, and Peavy had led his party on a long detour to avoid them before he realized they were only stones. It's lovely, sighed Hester, limping along at Tom's side. She was smiling to herself, which he had never seen her do, and whistling a little tune through her teeth. What are you so happy about? he asked. We're going to Airhaven, aren't we? she replied in a whisper. It's laired up ahead somewhere, and Peavy's little gang will never take it, not with Mossies and the Airhaven people ranged against them. They'll be killed, and we'll find a ship to take us north to London. Anna Fang's there, remember? She might help us again. Oh, her, said Tom angrily. Didn't you hear what Peavy said? She's a league spy. I thought so, admitted Hester. I mean, all those questions she kept asking us about London and Valentine. You should have told me, he protested. I might have revealed an important secret. Why would I care? asked Hester. And since when have apprentice historians known any important secrets? Anyway, I thought you realized she was a spy. She didn't look like one. Well, spies don't generally. You can't expect them to wear a big sandwich board with spy on it or a special spying hat. She was in a strange, jokey mood, and Tom wondered if it was because these dismal steeps reminded her of her girlhood on that other island. Suddenly she touched his arm and said, Poor Tom, you're learning what Valentine taught me all those years ago. You can't trust anybody. Huh, said Tom. Oh, I didn't mean you, she added hurriedly. I think I trust you, almost. And what you did for me back in Tunbridge Wheels, making Peavy let me out of the lock-ups like that, a lot of people wouldn't have bothered. Not for somebody like me. Tom looked at her and saw more clearly than ever before the kind, shy Hester peeping from behind the grim mask. He smiled at her with such warmth that she blushed, at least her strange face turned red in patches and her scar went purple. And Peavy looked back at them and hollered, Come on, you two lovebirds! Stop whispering sweet nothings and march! Afternoon the cloud clearing eastward, and sunlight dazzling down through the wave-tops, flickering on the upper works of Tunbridge Wheels. Shrike moves through the suburb's streets, with his head swinging slowly from side to side. Bodies drift in the flooded rooms, like cold tea-bags left too long in the pot. Small fish dart in and out of a pirate's mouth. A girl's hair coils on the current. Dark keels of salvage boats move overhead. He waits, hidden in the shadows, while three naked boys come diving down, flying past him with urgent motions of their arms and legs, and leaving trails of silver bubbles. They kick back to the surface, carrying guns, bottles, a leather belt. Hester is not here. Shrike turns away from the sunken suburb, following the shadows of drifting oil slicks over the silt. Wreckage is strewn along the sea floor, and floating bodies beckon him toward the roots of the Black Island. It is evening by the time he walks out of the surf, trailing flags of seaweed, water draining from inside his battered armor. He shakes his head to clear his vision, and stares around him at a beach of black sand beneath dark cliffs. It takes him most of another hour to find the life raft hidden in a tumble of house-sized boulders. He unsheathes his metal claws and tears the bottom out of it, cutting off her escape. Hester is his again now. When she is dead, he will carry her gently through the drowned sunlight and the forests of kelp, 
back through the marshes and the long leagues of the hunting ground, to Crome. He will take her into London in his arms like a father carrying his sleeping child. He drops on all fours in the sand and starts sniffing for her scent. Towards sundown, they finally reached the top of the slope and found themselves looking down into the centre of the Black Island. Tom hadn't realised until now that it was an extinct volcano, but from here it was obvious. The steep black crags ringed an almost circular bowl of land, green and patched with fields. Almost directly below the place where the pirates crouched, a small static settlement stood beside a blue lake. There were airship hangars and mooring masts beside the stone buildings, and on the flat ground behind them, dwarfing the whole place, Airhaven perched on a hundred skinny landing legs, looking as helpless as a grounded bird. The air caravanserai, <laughs> chuckled Peavy. He pulled out his telescope and put it to his eye. Look at em work. They're pumping their gas bags back up, desperate to get back into the sky. He swung the glass quickly across the surrounding hillsides. No sign of any of our boys. Oh, if only we had a cannon left. But we'll manage, eh, lads? A bunch of airy fairies is no match for us. Come on, let's get closer. There was a strange edge to the mayor's voice. He's frightened, Tom realised. But he can't admit it, in case Mungo and Mags and Ames lose faith in him. He had never thought he would feel sorry for the pirate mayor, but he did. Peavy had been kind to him, in his way, and it hurt to see him reduced to this, scrambling across the wet ground with his people muttering and cursing him behind his back. They still followed him, though, down between the screes into the crater of the old fire mountain. Once they saw riders silhouetted on a distant crag, a patrol of islanders hunting for survivors from the sunken pirate town. Once an airship flew low overhead, and Peavy hissed at everybody to lie flat and stay still, wrapping his monkey under his robes to muffle its shrill complaints. The airship circled, but by that time the sun had gone down, and the pilot did not see the figures who cowered in the twilight before him like mice hiding from an owl. He flew back down to land at the caravanserai as a fat moon heaved itself over the eastern crags. Tom gave a sharp sob of relief and scrambled up. Around him, the others were also starting to move, grunting, dislodging small stones that went clattering away down the hillside. He could see people hurrying about with lanterns and torches in the streets of the air caravanserai, and lamp-lit windows that made him think how wonderful it would be to be warm and safe indoors. Airhaven was bright with electric lights, and the wind brought the distant sounds of shouted orders, music, cheering. "'For Pete's sake!' hissed Mungo. "'We're too late! It's leaving!' "'Never!' scoffed Peavy. But they could all see that Airhaven's gas bags were almost full. A few minutes later, the growl of its engines came rumbling up the slope, rising and falling as the wind gusted. The flying town was straining upward, its crab-like legs folding back into place underneath it. No! shouted Peavy. Then he was running downhill, scrambling and tumbling down clattering spills of scree toward the flat, boggy land in the crater floor, and as he ran they heard him screaming, Come back! You're my catch! I sank my town for you! Mungo and Mags and Ames set off after him, with Hester and Tom behind. At the foot of the slope, the ground grew soft and squashy underfoot, and pools of water reflected the moon and the lights of the rising town. Come back! they could hear Peavy shouting somewhere ahead of them. Come back! And then, Ah! Oh! Help! They hurried toward the sound of his voice and the harsh screams of the monkey and all came to a halt together at the edge of a deep patch of bog. Peavy was already up to his waist in it. The monkey perched on top of his head like a sailor on a foundering ship, grinning with fear. 
Give me a hand, boys, the mayor pleaded. Help me. We can still get it. It's only testing its lifting engines. It'll come down again. The pirates watched him silently. They knew they had no chance of taking the flying town, and that his shouts had probably warned the islanders of their presence. We've got to help him, whispered Tom, starting forward, but Hester held him back. Too late, she said. Peavy was sinking deeper, the weight of his chain of office pulling him down. He spluttered as the black mud swilled into his mouth. Come on, lads, mags, Mungo, I'm your mare. I done all this for you. He searched for Tom with wild, terrified eyes. Tell them, Tommy boy, he whimpered. Tell them I wanted to make Tumbridge wheels great. I wanted to be respectable. Tell them. Mungo's first shot blew the monkey off the top of Peavy's head in a cloud of singed fur. The second and third went through his chest. He bowed his head, and the mud gulped him down with soft, farting noises. The pirates turned to look at Tom. We probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for you, muttered Mungo. If you hadn't gone filling the chief's head up with all them ideas about manners and cities and stuff, agreed Mags. Different forks for every course and no talking with your mouth full, sneered Ames. Tom started to back away. To his surprise, Hester stepped quickly between him and the pirates. It's not Tom's fault, she said. And you're no use to us neither. Mungo growled. Neither of you is. We're pirates. We don't need no lessons in etiquette, and we don't need no lame scar-faced girl to hold us up. He raised his gun, and Mags followed suit. Even Mr. Ames pulled out a little revolver. And a voice out of the darkness said, They're mine. Chapter 21 In the Engineerium London was climbing toward a high plateau where the town-torn earth was dusted with thin layers of snow. Far behind it, but not nearly far enough, rolled Panzerstadt Bayreuth, not just a threatening blur on the horizon anymore, but a huge dark mass of tracks and tears, the gold filigree work of its ornate top deck clearly visible above the smoke of factories and engines. Londoners crowded onto the aft observation platforms and watched in silence as the gap between the two cities slowly narrowed. That afternoon the Lord Mayor announced that there was no need for panic and that the Guild of Engineers would bring the city safely through this crisis. But there had already been riots and looting on the lower tiers, and squads of beefeaters had been sent down to keep order in the gut. "'Old Chrome doesn't know what he's talking about,' muttered one of the men on duty at the Quirk Circus elevator station that evening. "'I never thought I'd hear myself say it.' But he's a fool, bringing poor old London way out east like this, day after day of travelling, week after week, just to get scoffed by some big old conurbation. I wish Valentine was here. He'd know what to do. Quiet, Bert, hissed his companion. Here comes some more of them. Both men bowed politely as two engineers strode up to the turnstiles. A young man and a girl, dressed identically in green glastic goggles and white rubber hoods and coats. The girl flashed a gold pass. When she and her companion had gone up into the waiting elevator, Bert turned to his friend and whispered, It must be important, this do at the Engineerium. They've been swarming up out of their nests in the deep gut like a load of old white maggots. Imagine having a guild meeting at a time like this. Inside the elevator, Catherine sat down next to Bevis Pod, already feeling hot and self-conscious inside the coat that he had lent her. She glanced at him, and then checked her reflection in the window, 
making sure that the red wheels they had drawn so carefully on each other's foreheads had not gotten smudged. She thought they both looked ridiculous in these hoods and goggles, but Bevis had assured her that a lot of engineers wore them these days. And the other occupant of the elevator, a fat navigator, didn't so much as look at them while the car lurched toward top tier. Catherine had spent the whole day restlessly waiting for Bevis to arrive with her disguise. To while away the time, she had looked up the name Hester Shaw in the indices of all her father's books, but couldn't find it. A complete catalogue of the London Museum contained one brief reference to a Pandora Shaw, but it just said she was an out-country scavenger who had supplied a few minor fossils and pieces of old tech to the Historians Guild and gave the date of her death seven years ago. After that, she tried looking up Medusa, only to learn that it was some sort of monster in an old story. She didn't think Magnus Crome and his engineers believed in monsters. Nobody gave a second glance as she and Bevis strode across top tier toward the main entrance of the Engineerium. Scores of engineers were already hurrying up the steps. Catherine joined them, clutching her gold pass and keeping close to the apprentice, terrified that she might lose him in this crowd of identical white coats. This will never work, she kept thinking, but the guildsman on duty at the door wasn't bothering to look at passes. She took a last look at the fading sunset behind the dome of St. Paul's, then stepped inside. It was bigger than she expected, and brighter, lit by hundreds of argon globes, that hung in the great open shaft at the centre of the building, like planets hanging in space. She looked around for the staircase, but Bevis tugged at her arm and said, We go up by monorail. Look! The engineers were clambering into little monorail cars. Catherine and Bevis joined the line, listening to their muttered conversations and the squeaky rustle of their coats rubbing together. Bevis's eyes were wide and frightened behind his goggles. Catherine had hoped that they would be able to get a monorail car to themselves so that they could talk, but more engineers were arriving all the time, and she ended up sitting on the far side of a packed car from him, wedged tightly in with a group from the Maglev Research Division. "'Where are you from, guildsperson?' asked the man sitting beside her. Uh, "'Um—' Catherine looked frantically at Bevis, but he was too far away to whisper an answer. She blurted out the first thing that came to mind. K-Division! Ah, old Twixie, eh? said the man. I hear she's having amazing results with her new models. Oh, yes, very, she replied. Then the car moved off with a lurch, and her neighbour turned to the window, fascinated by the passing view. Catherine had expected the monorail to feel like an elevator, but the speed and the spiralling movement made it quite different, and for a moment she had to concentrate hard on not being sick. The other engineers seemed not to notice. "'What do you think the Lord Mayor's speech will be about?' one of them asked. "'It must be Medusa,' said another. "'I heard they are preparing for a test.' "'Let's hope it works.' said a woman sitting just in front of Catherine. It was Valentine who found the machine after all, and he's only a historian, you know. You can't trust them. Oh, Valentine is the Lord Mayor's man, said another. Don't let that historian's guild mark fool you. He's as loyal as a dog, so long as we give him plenty of money and he gets to pretend that foreign daughter of his is a high London lady. Around and around they went, and up past offices and workshops full of busy engineers, like an enormous hive of insects. The car stopped on level five, and Catherine climbed out, still flushed with anger at what the others had said. She linked up with Bevis again, and they all trotted together along chilly white corridors and through hanging curtains of transparent plastic. She could hear the babble of voices ahead and after a few twists and turns, they emerged into an immense auditorium. Bevis led the way to a seat near one of the exits. She looked around to see if she could spot Supervisor Nimmo, but it was impossible to make him out. 
The auditorium was a sea of white coats and bald or hooded heads, and more were pouring through the entrances all the time. Look, hissed Bevis, nudging her. That's Dr. Twix, the one I told you about. He pointed to a squat little barrel-shaped woman who was taking a seat in the front row, chattering animatedly with her neighbours. All the top guildspersons are here. Twix, Chubb, Garstang, and there's Dr. Vambrace, the head of security. Catherine began to feel frightened. If she had been unmasked at the door, she might have been able to pass it off as a silly prank. But now she was deep in the engineer's inner sanctum, and she could tell that something important was about to happen. She reminded herself that even if they discovered her, the engineers would never dare harm Thaddeus Valentine's daughter. She tried not to think about what they might do to Bevis. At last the doors were closed and the lights dimmed. An expectant hush filled the auditorium, broken only by the slithery whisper of five hundred engineers rising to their feet. Catherine and Bevis jumped up with them, peering at the stage over the shoulders of the people in front. Magnus Crome was standing at a metal lectern, his cold eyes sweeping the audience. For a moment he seemed to stare straight at Catherine, and she had to remind herself that he couldn't possibly recognize her, not with her hood and her goggles and the tall collar of her coat turned up. "'You may be seated,' said Crome, and waited until they had settled themselves before going on. This is a glorious day for our guild, my friends. A ripple of excitement ran through the auditorium, and through Catherine, too. Crome motioned for quiet. Up in the ceiling of the auditorium a slide projector whirred into life, and a picture appeared on a screen behind his head. It was a diagram of an enormous, complicated machine. Medusa, announced Crome and there was a sort of echo as all the engineers sighed, Medusa. As some of you already know, he went on, Medusa is an experimental energy weapon from the Sixty-Minute War. We have known about it for some time, in fact, ever since Valentine found these documents on his trip to America twenty years ago. The projector screen was flickering with faded diagrams and spidery writing. Father never told me that, Catherine thought. Of course, these fragmentary plans were not enough to let us reconstruct Medusa, Crome was saying. But seven years ago, thanks again to Valentine, we acquired a remarkable piece of old tech taken from a long-lost military site in the American desert. It is perhaps the best preserved ancient computer core ever discovered. And it is more than that. It is the brain of Medusa, the artificial intelligence that once powered this remarkable machine. Thanks to the hard work of Dr. Splay and his comrades in B Division, we have at last been able to restore it to working order. Guildspersons, the days when London had to run and hide from other hungry cities are at an end. With Medusa at our command, we will be able to reduce any one of them to ashes in the blink of an eye. The engineers applauded wildly, and Bevis Pod nudged at Catherine to join in, but her hands seemed to have become frozen to the metal armrests of her seat. She felt giddy with shock. She remembered everything she had heard about the Sixty-Minute War, and how the ancients' terrible thunder weapons had blasted their static cities and poisoned the earth and sky. Father would never have helped the engineers to recreate such a terrible thing. Nor will we have to go chasing after scraps like Salthook, Chrome continued. In another week, London will be within range of Batmunk Gompa the shield wall. For a thousand years, the Anti-Traction League has cowered behind it, holding out against the tide of history. Medusa will destroy it at a single stroke, 
the lands beyond it, with all their huge static cities, their crops and forests, their untapped mineral wealth, will become London's new hunting ground. You could hardly hear him now. The cheers of the engineers rolled like breakers against the wall behind him, and it slid slowly open, revealing a long window that looked out towards St. Paul's Cathedral and the turrets of the Guildhall. But first, he shouted, we have more pressing business to attend to. Although I had hoped we might keep Medusa hidden until we reached the shield wall, it has become necessary to give a demonstration of its power. Even as I speak, Dr. Splay's team is preparing a test-firing of the new weapon. Even if Catherine had wanted to hear more, it would soon have become impossible, for Chrome's audience were all talking excitedly among themselves. A few engineers, presumably those connected with the Medusa project, were hurrying to the exits. Standing up, Catherine started pushing her way to the door. A moment later, she was out in the antiseptic corridor, wondering what to do next. Kate? Bevis Pod appeared behind her. Where are you going? People noticed you leave. I saw some guild security people watching us. We've got to get out of here, whispered Catherine. Where's the way out? I don't know, admitted the boy. I've never been to this level before. I suppose we'll have to find our way back to the monorail. He shook Catherine away as she tried to take his hand. No, somebody will see. Engineers aren't supposed to touch each other. They hurried along the tubular corridors, and Catherine said, Croom was lying. My father didn't go to America seven years ago. He just went on a little trip to the islands of the Western Ocean. And he never told me he'd found anything important. He'd have told me if he'd really found Medusa. He wouldn't want anything to do with old world weapons anyway. But why would the Lord Mayor lie? asked Bevis, who was secretly rather pleased that his guild had stumbled upon the keys to yet another ancient secret. Anyway, he didn't say your dad went to America for this thing. He just said he acquired it. Maybe he bought it from a scavenger or something. I wonder what Chrome meant about a demonstration. He stopped. They had come to the end of the corridor, and there were no monorails in sight. Three doorways faced them. Two were locked. The third led only onto a narrow balcony that jutted out from the engineerium's flank, high above Paternoster Square. What now? asked Catherine, hearing her own voice high and thin with fright, and Bevis just as nervously replied, I don't know. She stepped out onto the balcony to catch her breath. The moon was up, but veiled by thin clouds, and a cool drizzle was falling. She pulled off her goggles and let the rain spill down her face, glad to be free of the heat and the chemical stench. She thought about father. Had he really found Medusa? Bevis was right. Chrome had no reason to lie. Poor father. He would be in the air now, somewhere above the snow peaks of Shanguo. If only she had some way to warn him what they were planning to do with his discovery. A low mechanical rumble came drifting across the moonlit square. She looked down at the wet deck plates, but could not see what was making the noise. Then something made her glance up at St. Paul's. She gasped. Bevis! Look! Slowly, like a huge bud blooming, the dome of the ancient cathedral was splitting open. Chapter 22 Shrike Had the stalker only just arrived, or had he been standing watching them squabble, dark and still, on the stone-strewn hillside like a stone himself? He took a step forward, and the damp grass smouldered where he set his foot. They are mine. The pirates swung around. Mags's machine gun spraying streams of tracer at the Iron Man, while Mungo's hand cannon punched black holes in his armor, 
and Ames blazed away with his revolver. Caught in the web of gunfire, Shrike stood, swaying for a moment. Then, slowly, like a man walking into a strong wind, he started forward. Bullets sparked off his armor, and his coat tore away in rags and tatters. The holes the cannon made spewed something that might have been blood, might have been oil. He stretched out his arms, and an iron claw was ripped away, and another. Then he reached Mags, and she made a choking sound, and went backward into the bracken and down. Ames flung down his gun and turned to run, but Shrike was suddenly behind him, and he stopped short, gawping at a handful of red spikes that sprouted from his chest. Mungo's gun was empty. He threw it aside and pulled his sword out, but before he could swing it, Shrike had grabbed him by the hair and wrenched his head back and severed his neck with one scything blow. Tom, said Hester, run! Shrike flung the head aside and stalked forward, and Tom ran. He didn't want to, he knew there was no point, and he knew he should stand by Hester, but his legs had other ideas. His whole body wanted only to be away from the terrible dead thing that was coming toward him down the hill. Then the ground gave way under him. He plunged into cold mud and fell, rolled over, and came to a rest against an outcrop of stone on the edge of the same mire that had swallowed Chrysler Peavy. He looked back. The stalker stood among the sprawling bodies. Airhaven was overhead, testing its engines one by one, and its lights kindled cold reflections on his moon-silvered skull. Hester stood facing him, bravely holding her ground. Tom thought, She's trying to save me. She's buying time so that I can get away. But I can't just let him kill her. I can't. Ignoring the countless voices of his body that were still screaming at him to run, he started to crawl back up the hill. <laughs> he heard Shrike say, and the voice slurred and caught like a faulty recording. Steam hissed from holes in the stalker's chest, and black ichor dripped from him and bubbled at the corners of his mouth. Are you going to kill me? the girl asked. Shrike nodded his great head. Just once. For a, a, a little while. What do you mean? The long mouth dragged sideways, smiling. We are two of a kind, you and I. I knew it as soon as I found you that day on the shore. After you left me, the loneliness. I had to go, Shrike, she whispered. I wasn't part of your collection. You were very d d dear to me. Something's wrong with him, thought Tom, inching up the hill. Stalkers weren't meant to have feelings. He remembered what he had been taught about the resurrected men all going mad. Was that seaweed hanging from the ducts on Shrike's head? Had his brains gone rusty? Sparks were flickering inside his chest, behind the bullet holes. Hester, Shrike grated, falling heavily to his knees so that his face was at the same level as hers. Chrome has made me a promise. His servants have learned the secret of my construction. Fear prickled the back of Tom's neck. I will take your body to London, Shrike told the girl. Chrome will resurrect you as an iron woman. Your flesh will be replaced with st steel, your nerves with wire, your thoughts with electricity, 
You will be beautiful. You will be my companion for all time. Shrike, Hester snorted. Chrome won't want me resurrected. Why not? No one will recognize you in your n- n- new body. You will have no memories, no feelings. You will be no threat to him. But I will remember for you, my daughter. We will hunt down Valentine together. Hester laughed, a strange, mad, terrible sound that set Tom's teeth on edge as he reached the place where Mungo's body lay. The heavy sword was still clamped in the pirate's fist, and Tom reached out and started prying it free. Glancing up, he saw that Hester had taken a step closer to the stalker. She tilted her head back, baring her throat, readying herself for his claws. All right she said. But let Tom go. He must die, insisted Shrike. It is part of my bargain with Chrome. You will not remember him when you wake in your new body. Oh, please, Shrike, no, begged Hester. Tell Chrome he escaped, or drowned, or something, died somewhere in the out-country, and you couldn't bring him back. Please. Tom clung to the sword, its hilt still clammy with Mungo's sweat. Now that the moment had come, he was so scared that he could barely breathe, let alone stand up and confront the stalker. I can't do this, he thought. I'm a historian not a warrior. But he couldn't desert Hester, not while she was bargaining away her life for his. He was close enough to see the fear in her eye and the sharp glitter of Shrike's claws as he reached for her. Very well, the stalker said. Gently, he stroked Hester's face with the tips of the blades. The boy can live. The hand drew back to strike. Hester shut her eye. Shrike! howled Tom, hurling himself up and forward with the sword held out stiffly in front of him, feeling the green light spill across his face as Shrike spun, hissing to meet him. An iron arm lashed out, hurling him backward, He felt a searing pain in his chest, and for a moment he was sure that he had been torn in two. But it was the stalker's forearm that struck him, not the bladed hand, and he landed in one piece and rolled over, gasping at the pain, expecting to see Shrike lunge at him, and then nothing ever again. But Shrike was on the ground, and Hester was bending over him, and as Tom watched, the stalker's eye flickered, and something exploded inside him with a flash and a crack and a coil of smoke leaking upward. The hilt of the sword jutted from one of the gashes in his chest, crackling with blue sparks. Oh, Shrike, whispered Hester. Shrike carefully sheathed his claws so that she could take his hand. Unexpected memories fluttered through his disintegrating mind, and he suddenly knew who he had been before they dragged him onto the resurrection slab to make a stalker of him. He wanted to tell Hester, and he lifted his great iron head toward her, but before he could force the words out, his death was upon him, and it was no easier this time than the last. The great iron carcass settled into stillness, and smoke blew away on the wind. Down in the valley, horns were blowing, and Tom could see a party of riders starting up the hill from the caravanserai, alerted by the sound of gunfire. They carried spears and flaming torches, and he didn't think they would be friendly. He tried to push himself upright, but the pain in his chest almost made him faint. Hester heard him groan, 
and swung toward him. What did you do that for? she shouted. Tom could not have been more surprised if she had slapped him. He was going to kill you, he protested. He was going to make me like him, screamed Hester, hugging Shrike. Didn't you hear what he said? He was going to make me everything I ever wanted. No memories, no feelings. Imagine Valentine's face when I came for him. Oh, why do you keep interfering? He would have turned you into a monster. Tom heard his own voice rising to a shout as all his pain and fear flared into anger. I'm already a monster, she shrieked. No, you're not. Tom managed to heave himself to his knees. You're my friend, he shouted. I hate you. I hate you. Hester was yelling. Well, I care about you, whether you like it or not, Tom screamed. Do you think you're the only person who's lost their mum and dad? I feel just as angry and lonely as you. But you don't see me going around wanting to kill people and trying to get myself turned into a stalker. You're just a rude, self-pitying... But the rest of what he had been planning to tell her died away in an astonished sob, because suddenly he could see the town below him and Airhaven and the approaching riders as clearly as if it were the middle of the day. He saw the stars fade. He saw Hester's face freeze in mid-shout with spittle trailing from the corners of her mouth. He saw his own wavering shadow dancing on the blood-soaked grass. Above the crags, the night sky was filling with an unearthly light, as if a new sun had risen from the outcountry, somewhere far away toward the north. <laughs>